this meme innovation uh, that that is speculative and will probably die out at some point, but it can give birth to new ideas that could be you know, built on sustainable foundations at some point. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hello there. Good morning. Hey, Ryan. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Battling allergies. It's that time of year. I know. It's kind of like spring just came around yesterday or this past weekend. It's finally no more rain. Everything's budded, flowering. Jack, I've been I've been pumping allergy relief for the last two days too. Like I know the, the allergies are so bad, especially this year. It feels to me, and it may just be that my aller- I'm getting more and more sensitive, but it feels that the pollen gets worse and worse every single year. <laughs> I was driving yesterday with the top open on my car and there was just this thin green layer of of like on everything basically and I had luggage in the back seat and it was even on that I'm like wow this is <laughs> probably shouldn't be doing this in the midst of uh, the height of allergy season <laughs> so allergies are I guess a, a byproduct of a turning of the season uh, and we're starting to see some uh, some byproducts of maybe the turning of the season in crypto markets of, of uh, meme coins that we're going to talk about today, right? Uh, yeah, see what you did yeah. there. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I like I like I like how you brought it full circle. <laughs> I like the I like how we always do it for seasons. Like last time we said, hey, it's 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 gotten much colder. Represents the the crypto winter. We talk about the weather a lot. I, yeah, I mean, maybe like it, it, maybe there are like some market market cycle undertones there. <laughs> Um, all right, let's let's jump in. We have we have quite a bit to talk about. Um, you know, I think we, we want to really want to spend a lot of the time today talking about meme coins because it seems to be really dominating um, the news cycle over the last week or two. Um, and I think that there's kind of two angles that we can look at there. There's of course the Ethereum meme coins, but also over the weekend, you know, saw quite a bit going on um, on top of Bitcoin as well. So really want to dig in there and, and talk about kind of what it means for the ecosystem and what some of the longer term implications um, will be. And then um, a couple of notable stories out of Coinbase, you know, with them winding down one fairly sizable service um, and standing up another outside the United States. So um, we'll talk talk a bit about that. Um, but before we jump in, uh, Parth, do you want to talk a bit about what you tried last week? Yeah. So um, I think this is going to tee it up pretty nicely with the meme stories we have. But uh, I focused a lot last for the last two weeks on memes. And uh, last week I applied to be a part of Big Incorporation or Big Inc. And so uh, Big Inc. Is, is a fictitious company which represents an NFT collection that speaks about the culture of memes and NFT trading. And uh, it kind of really panders to the bear market, right? So the idea of the Big Inc. is that you have to be 
a really bad trader to get the ability to mint an NFT and be a part of Big Inc. So it's almost a joke on how much money you have lost in the bear market. So once you connect your wallet, they kind of check how badly you have done since the beginning of the bear market. And it's, it's kind of like the Olympics of the worst traders. Uh, the bigger your losses, the higher your point total, the better chance of getting to be a part of uh, Big Inc. And I feel like this is one of those things which I have to show you the website of this, of Big Inc, uh, just to get an understanding of what exactly it is. And, and Parth, for those who don't have a screen in front of them, what is, what is the URL? It's called BigInc.Business. Uh, so you can see where it says, Big Inc, you have nothing left to lose. Moonbirds are down by 94%. Doodles are down by 90%. Do you have an empty bag, empty your soul? Big Inc is looking for individuals who are sad, down bad, and have no choice in life but to accept the only offer available. And it's kind of, it talks about the culture of Web3 and how uh, there is dry humor in, uh, in the bear market and how people who have lost a lot, like if you've really lost a lot, only then can you participate and be a part of uh, Big Inc. So that's, it's kind of poking fun of the corporate culture, the degen culture, but at the same time, it's trying to engage with the community, especially for those who are down bad. What, what, do, you, what do you guys think? I mean, I think there's always been a little bit of comic relief, um, comedic relief rather, um, you know, in, in challenging times, you know, throughout crypto's history. I think like this seems to me that like getting back to the like, hey, we may be starting to climb out of the bear market, you know, or at least starting to maybe move on to the next chapter. Because I think like earlier on in the bear market, people were scared, right? We were seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of notable failures across some of the most, you know, major service providers in the space. And I think like it wasn't funny then. And it still isn't funny because a lot of people have lost billions of dollars and it's it's kind of permanently changed the landscape in which we operate. But this to me says like, hey, the, you know, let's, let's rally and, you know, let's come together as a community. Um, yeah. And I think like while it's it's relatively negative in terms of the fact that you've lost money. It maybe is representative of people coming out of, you know, coming out of wherever they were sheltering in place um, for the earliest days of the bear market. I think it's self-deprecating humor at best, right? So you are, you are kind of talking about, you're openly flaunting how bad you are as a trader, and that's how you get to be a part of the Big Inc. Uh, leaderboard, right? So the more points you accrue, it talks about how much you have lost. Uh, and it's just a... Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty fun process. There is a YouTube like video interview which you have to go through once you get selected, but it's really fun. It talks it really gives you an understanding of Web three culture uh, at its best. Yeah. So this is not something one should aspire to become part of, but if you feel <laughs> the need for camaraderie, this is a pressure release valve. It seems like that's true. I I have to say, misery loves company. So I I sort of wonder would would people who are going into this. In, in sharing their wallet addresses so that their trading activity can be verified. Are they looking to feel better because there may be people who haven't done as well? Is this a relative comparison? I think Ryan's right. It, it We shouldn't be taking joy in that. I think part when you put it in self-deprecating humor, I think that term makes sense. But it, it is a, a, a unique aspect of, uh, of this particular subculture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, I think it talks about memes, and I know we're going to talk about meme coins uh, right after. And so maybe I think it should be a good idea to just talk about what are what, what does it take to be a good 
meme coin project, right? Uh, or what's sort of the definition of a meme coin? And so in my head, I have a really specific definition where typically meme coin projects like Pepe or Big Inc or Turbo, they have really weak development teams, right? They have no clear use case and they also do not have any sort of intention to have a long sustainable project, right? But they're incredibly fun. It's all about the community. They pass the vibe check. Um, and so recently in the last uh, two to three weeks, we saw a couple of meme coins called uh, Pepe, Turbo, WSP, Vault, and a bunch of them. And uh, they became really popular. Um, in fact, Pepe coin reached a market cap of close to $1 billion. I think it's a little shy of $1 billion even, even as of now. And so it just talks about how there might be a change of season, as Jack said, like we might be moving from the winter to actually more on-chain activity, both on Ethereum and Bitcoin. Yeah, so maybe let's just let's just take a step back, right? Um, and, and Parth, I think it would be helpful maybe to kind of have you talk through what at a high level, right? Talk, talking like definitionally speaking, like what, what are meme coins? How do they maybe differ from other kind of investable assets within the crypto universe? Um, yeah. and then, and then we can go from there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a fair ask. So the, the term meme coin, uh, is a term for some tokens that are named after internet memes, right? So you could have a green frog, uh, you could have the Dogecoin, uh, uh character, and they have a frenzy of followers, right? So A, it's based on uh, any sort of internet meme and it has a lot of followers and they are fun, but they have minimal intrinsic value, right? So meme coins, a lot of people think that meme coins are almost kind of an online casino where it's so unpredictable. And that's the reason why people decide to uh, get in and out of uh, meme coins. So Pepe coin also started off as another meme coin um, and uh, it obviously grew pretty quickly. Uh, but I think there are a few interesting places where Pepe coin is actually pretty different from other meme coins. Uh, and if you want, I can, I can go into that. Right. So, so Parth, but Pepe has only been around for what, like weeks, not even months at this point. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's been around, uh, for the last three, three and a half weeks. And what's really different about Pepe coin is that early on, it got some sort of validation from digital artists within Web3. Right, so so people who are neck deep into the Web3 space and Web3 culture, uh, it got some validation uh, from there. So one of the most uh, popular digital artists, his name is Batsu. So he tweeted that, hey, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna embrace Pepecoin effort. I'll sell one of my art pieces, which usually go for 10 ETH, but I'm, you'll have to buy with Pepecoin only. And then you saw the price really pump. And then you had another popular crypto company called Manifold, which is a, a no-code um, uh, digital content creation platform. And they added Pepecoin as a form of payment for content creators, which means that any content creator can now sell their content in Pepecoins. And so now you saw these people who are so deeply rooted into the Web3 culture use Pepecoin as a form of payment and uh, typically when you think about meme coins, there is a life cycle, right? So you start with a meme coin, it gets really popular on Twitter, uh, it gets a big enough market cap and it gets listed on a centralized exchange like Binance or Coinbase, uh, and then maybe finds some utility. Here, it's the opposite. Before even getting listed on Binance, you had Pepecoin and a, and a bunch of these meme tokens actually find some utility uh, which are more Web3 native. And that's what I thought was a, a, a an interesting ob observation. 
worth noting, and I know we're going to get into it, but it's not just happening on Ethereum now. We're we're seeing it on Bitcoin recently. Yeah, Jack, you want to you want to talk a bit about that because I do think I mean it's really timely um, and real a really interesting part of this story. Yeah, so we we saw this whole idea of ordinals and inscriptions, the fact that you could add some set of arbitrary data into a, a transaction and it could be associated with a, a certain set of satoshis on the Bitcoin blockchain. And that began sort of earlier this year, took off in terms of embedding images and so creating like sort of NFT digital artifact like pieces on the Bitcoin blockchain that were inscribed in the blockchain and then associated with a certain set of Satoshis. Now we're seeing sort of a shift from embedding images to embedding text. And that text can be sort of associated with uh, creating some type of like a basically a fungible token that lives on Bitcoin, at least in theory. If you sort of follow along, uh, what you're having is people are inscribing sets of data that's basically saying, hey, this is a token. Right. I'm, I'm obviously oversimplifying it, but they're inscribing data that says this is a token. And if I mint a bunch of these, well, they're really just Satoshis that have an inscription on them. But then if we believe that that inscription is tied to something, then we could start to like make a fungible token or a set of fungible tokens. And that's what's happening at the moment is we're seeing a huge rise in the number of these inscription transactions, so much so that over the weekend, just before we were talking, uh, the first weekend in May, we saw 60% of transactions this weekend were text inscriptions. And so you have a set of normal Bitcoin transactions that are now competing with these text inscription transactions that are sort of associated currently with this meme trend of different meme coins being sort of more or less minted on Bitcoin or believed to be existed inscribed on Satoshi's. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Obviously, these types of things, as kind of history has taught us, tend to be boom and bust. But I think longer term, this could kind of have significant implications for each of these networks, right? I think like, obviously, Jack, as you pointed out, the technical underpinnings are different in terms of what it looks like, you know, in the context of the network. But certainly, I think over the weekend, we saw a block where the transaction fees were almost more than the subsidy for mining the block. And that's a very, very material change from where we were even a week or two ago, um, at least on Bitcoin. I think a lot of the proponents of ordinals and inscriptions have said, you know, this could potentially unlock a whole new level of utility on top of Bitcoin. And then, of course, you have a camp that is arguing the opposite and saying, like, this is not what Bitcoin's meant to do, right? But nonetheless, the miners are, are happy, right? Because it, it kind of helps diversify their income and potentially increase their income. You know, and this is coming at a particularly interesting time with the halving being less than a year away, right? So their, you know, margins could come under significant pressure because the, the amount of revenue that they're generating from mining a block is being effectively cut in half, right? So I think that piece is very interesting and and maybe speaks to the longer term implications for the network in the context of bitcoin but parth do you have any thoughts on on what this could potentially mean for for ethereum i think it's a similar story so because of a lot of this activity eth went to its to its highest gas fee in the last 12 months so you're looking at close to 90 dollars per transaction like on a on a bad uh, hour or a, or a bad day and it's it's also kind of it's sad and funny that Pepe is also is one of the biggest reasons why now you have this narrative of deflationary Ethereum. Uh, deflationary Ethereum is something which a lot of traditional finance uh, investors uh, really talk about. Uh, so you've seen 
ETH get uh, become deflationary. And also another interesting consequence is that you hear a lot about uh, a lot of rags to riches stories, right, within meme coins. And that attracts new retail investors to crypto, even though it's a really high risk bet. But uh, automatically, just because of the frenzy around on Twitter, you automatically have people asking or even just like our friends asking, hey, should I put money on Pepe coin now? Right. Mm. Um, and so that was something which I thought was really interesting. In fact, I was telling you right before this call, I had a handyman do some work at my place and we ended up talking about crypto. And the only two cryptocurrencies he knew about were Bitcoin and Dogecoin. Right. So that kind of speaks volumes about how popular these meme coins get. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys are making great points where the meme piece is like, it's funny. I think we would all sit here and agree at some point it probably fades or fizzles out and some people will probably lose some money associated with this. Like it's hard to argue that there's long-term value creation happening, but at the same time you have these sort of like byproducts as a result. Ryan was talking about Bitcoin security and we've had this discussion before of Bitcoin is highly reliant on its inflationary subsidy. Of course, block rewards to miners are two things. They're a subsidy that halves every four years. We have the halving coming up next year. Uh, and then there's transaction fees. And in theory, over time, there'll be enough transaction volume on Bitcoin that transaction fees can pay for, for block security. And currently, we're starting to see transactions pick up and that's driving fees higher. And I actually noticed Lightning Network channels, we saw a 10% bump up in the number of open Lightning Network channels over the past five days. So people are starting to use off-chain solutions to make smaller payments because fees are rising. Um, but that's driving value down into like Bitcoin security. And then there's actual usage of Taproot at the moment. 75% of transactions over the past week have been using Taproot. Before, we saw almost no adoption as of like the fourth quarter of last year. And so it's sort of this meme innovation uh, that that is speculative and will probably die out at some point, but it can give birth to new ideas that could be you know, built on sustainable foundations at some point. And at the same time, they're sort of driving value in different places. Bitcoin miners on Bitcoin, Ethereum to potentially ETH token holders because yield is being passed on to stakers and more ETH is being burned. And so while there's speculative trends, there are like real things to be paying attention to. And that's, I think, why we're talking about it today. Yeah. And Jack, to your point about more ETH being burned, I was looking up before we got on today and it seems that the most popular smart contract liquidity pools the last week has been uh, the Pepe to wrapped ETH tokens in both Uniswap V2 and V3. And based on their volume, they've raked in almost 900,000 in accrued transaction fees. And when you look at the, the burn rate out on ultrasoundmoney.net, you, they're clearly having an impact in the Uniswap buckets, but there's also some issues with respect to uh, liquidity. And I saw that one particular trader was trying to sell out of some of their Pepe tokens, and they were impacted by 25% slippage. So mm -hmm. that's a pretty substantial uh, difference. You also mentioned about the fact that there's likely to be some pullback in the value of these things. If you look at the uh, BRC20 market, and the fact that this uh, identity Domo was the one who actually published this script writing standard or the request for the BRC20s, they've came forward at the time and said, please don't expect to make money on this. These will go to zero. But <laughs> at the same point in time, um, there are over 11,000 BRC tokens on Bitcoin. And you know, Bitcoin Network, Brian, to your point about transaction volume, 
had the highest single day transaction volume in its history, uh, 534,000 transactions, I believe it was about a week ago. I incorrectly thought it may have something to do with some of the challenge in the US banking system. Uh, maybe people fleeing into Bitcoin. It turns out it was actually a lot of these uh, BRC20 transactions were affecting uh, some of that. But I think there's a lot to be learned from this. I think there's the the culture piece, right? Um, and then there's like the economic piece of this whole thing. And then the, probably the technical piece is, sits out on, on a bucket of its own. But it does kind of speak volumes around kind of where we are as an ecosystem in that, you know, we're coming out of this this period where it was extremely challenging market conditions. And it may very well be, you know, it's, it's speculation at the end of the day, but kind of if you look behind that speculation and, and who's driving it, you know, it's been quite some time since, you know, investors have been able to kind of generate returns, right, in the ecosystem. And I think that frenzy that we're experiencing right now related to these meme coins is probably driven largely by that. That's a really good point. And I, I want to go back to what Jason was talking about in terms of transaction volume. And so I know, Ryan, you mentioned now that there is this meme coin frenzy, I think it's important to have a mental framework on how to evaluate a bunch of these meme coins, right? So so there are a lot of tools which you, you can use. I, I always tell my, my friends to look at the trading volume of any meme coin that you that you are evaluating. Uh, also look at the liquidity pool uh, to check if it's thick, if it's concentrated. Uh, and you can use online free products like Dex tools to check if the liquidity pool is locked, right? Because if it's not, then the traders can dump on you any anytime, right? So, so it's important to look into how deep the liquidity is, uh, who the token holders are, uh, which essentially tells you who you are kind of trading against. Right, and so I know a few months ago we spoke about this tool called Bubble Maps uh, on how uh, this tool connects different wallets uh, and how it shows it visualizes links between different wallets. So a lot of these tools can be helpful to uh, evaluate meme coins like Pepe, Turbo, or WSB. In fact, um, w one meme coin which is called uh, Turbo. This was like the second biggest meme coin in the last three weeks. So. Um, Another popular artist called Mankind uh, did kind of a live experiment, and this is a funny story. So this person did a live experiment, and he asked ChatGPT to create a meme coin for him with $69 of budget, right? And so, and then uh, he was tweeting screenshots of the responses he got from ChatGPT, and so he got a few name recommendations. He posted a poll on Twitter. They decided that, hey, let's call it Turbo Toad, and then uh, that's it. Like, that's how it became a meme, so. It's it's crazy to think about that because, you know, for context, BRC twenties came forward in March. You know, you talk about Pepe's. Pepe's have been out for a few weeks. Between Pepe tokens and the BRC twenties, you've got almost two billion dollars of market cap that's been essentially valued since its inception for these different uh, token types in a, a span of a, two months, under two months. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy. So people are valuing that meme. It is crazy um, it, when you kind of like without context. But I guess if you like look across like traditional trading, the amount of 
value that you know in in recent like meme stock trading that has been created and then destroyed by meme stocks i think like there's a it's a very similar phenomenon that's happening here but it's actually at i think a smaller scale when you think about the activity that's been happening in tradfi kind of in similar types of activity right definitely smaller scale jason what do you what do you think the uh aggregate actual liquidity of that two billion is like 50 million I mean, we're speculating here, but like... I have no idea. That's ultimately it, right? You're building this tower that has only so many exit doors at some point. That's what tends to happen with these types of things. I, I don't know. To me, it, it's just, it's fascinating to watch. It's not something that I'm going to personally dive into, but it is, uh, it is pretty interesting. So let's switch gears a bit and talk a little bit more about um, Coinbase and some of uh, the announcements that we've seen in, out of that shop in the last week. So, uh, Jason, do you want to you want to start us off with the with the U.S. side of things? Sure. So we saw an announcement last week from Coinbase saying that they were going to sunset their Coinbase Borrow program. And if you're not familiar with Borrow, what it did was allowed people who held Bitcoin on the Coinbase exchange to take a fiat loan against that Bitcoin. So basically, you can monetize your Bitcoin holding without incurring a taxable event by selling your Bitcoin. The cost of doing so is typically above 8% for the loan, so pretty expensive loan. But if you believe that your Bitcoin was going to go up in value and you needed the fiat, you could take a loan against that. And as long as you maintained the loan-to-value ratio, you'd have access to capital. What we're seeing is as of May 10th, Coinbase is going to shutter that product There's been some discussion about whether there's a lack of demand. There's also considerations around um, the cost of capital, given the Fed funds rate, uh, whether or not there's a lot of venture capital money available to to fund transactions. But, you know, in terms of this type of product, this is one of several Bitcoin lending products or Bitcoin backed lending products that have shuttered over the past uh, year, two years. So. This product in particular was only uh, available for under three years. I believe it came to market uh, in August of 2020. Here it's shutting down in May of 2023. But I I think what we're seeing here is a strategy on behalf of the Coinbase team to shutter this particular offering and focus on some other areas. Now, the question will be, what happens uh, with there being less Bitcoin available to to rehypothecate? Yeah, it's just a conversation that the lending market really changed. Uh, We also saw coins taken off of exchanges, as well as people just become more cognizant of the fact that, hey, you know, you better get comfortable with your your custodians, you know, operational risk and you know compliance considerations, and, and make sure they actually have the coin that they're telling you that they have, because uh, we found out that you know some folks weren't doing that a year ago. And so, to your point, Jason, if you get rid of the vast majority of the lending market. I could only name a few entities that still exist that offer lending and borrowing against Bitcoin and ETH uh, in a centralized, like scalable way for institutions. How does that change the market? Right. I think it fundamentally does change the market. It gives you, to some degree, I would argue, a more maybe pure price signal just because you have less of the the potential of like rehypothecation and lending Bitcoin and you know, throwing throwing your Bitcoin in a black box, to, to put it simply, uh, and then letting a, a centralized exchange or, or lender do whatever they want with it, and then potentially, you know, transferring uh, the, you know, the asset itself or, or making multiple claims on top of it, right, right? like rehypothecating with maybe poor collateral or no collateral in the background. Some of that stuff was happening last year. Now it seems like 
the evidence would bear that there's a lot less of that happening. So maybe you get a more pure price signal of what the market is actually like net buyers or net sellers, but that could also lead to higher volatility in both directions as well. Definitely. I think you're right. Cause you take out some of the volume that's available. You take out some of the supply and then you may see some swings that are reflective of the, the available capacity at that point in time. And how motivated are your sellers? How motivated are your buyers? So you may see some uh, some return of volatility for sure. We're in the Bitcoin data itself too. On chain, we're just seeing more coins put into accumulator addresses and held in like an illiquid wallet, which is just coins haven't moved in over a year. We call it illiquid. Of course, it be- could become liquid again. It does from time to time. But that number is pushing 70%. And if you back out the math, like that number could be low 70%, 70, 75% of illiquid Bitcoin that haven't moved in a year. That means really the marginal price setting is done by the 25% of movable coins. Uh, and then you sort of back out all of this lending activity that was going on, now you're just starting to deal with just a smaller and smaller pile of, of coins that is setting the marginal price. And Ryan, before you jump in, I think what you, you start to look for is what are the operational aspects of these other large centralized exchanges? Are there delays? Are there um, you know, higher fees that may be associated with the moving from the cold wallets to the hot wallets and, and off the exchanges? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to add, you know, I think, you know, last couple of market cycles, or at least the last market cycle, lending was a critical piece of the overall market infrastructure, right? That, you know, that that's why we saw the success and then the failure of a number of notable crypto, you know, centralized crypto lenders. Um, I think, to your point, Jack, it will be really interesting to see X that type of capability and that infrastructure, how that plays out, you know, in the next market cycle um, in terms of being able to basically, you know, capture utility or value for other purposes within the crypto ecosystem, right? Because to your point, people were pulling out loans against their Bitcoin and their Ethereum, um, not selling it and then going you know, into DeFi and doing all sorts of different activities with that value, right? Now that that avenue doesn't exist to, to basically extract that value without selling your, your crypto, that could potentially you know, have knock-on effects for kind of the the periphery projects, whether it's in DeFi or, you know, or, or even kind of on top of Bitcoin itself, I think, you know, it'll be really interesting to watch, you know, going forward. Um, and then, you know, just quickly, Jack, let's um, let's just talk a bit about um, the derivatives announcement out of Coinbase, because I think that's kind of, you know, an important story in the overall um, Coinbase portfolio and kind of what we've been talking about around regulatory arbitrage and maybe decentralizing business as a means of, of hedging against uh, regulatory uncertainty. Yeah, so I think we touched on it uh, a couple of weeks back when we were chatting, when Coinbase had initially sort of made the filing or got the approval, I believe, from Bermuda. Uh, but but Coinbase has now, I believe, launched uh, a product for trading derivatives, including perpetuals, uh, which are sort of the larger by volume uh, derivatives on Bitcoin and ETH, I believe, to start uh, for international customers. And it sort of speaks to this whole idea of like some of these US based businesses diversifying their lines of business and going offshore uh, because they, they don't necessarily have regulatory clarity to launch those types of products in the United States. And then we also saw, I believe last week, Gemini announced that they're doing the same thing. So they're launching uh, a, comp- a competitor in the derivative space for international customers as well. And it all relates back to last year when 
Of course, FTX no longer exists. That was second largest exchange, depending on how you look at it, and one of the largest derivatives trading platforms. And now there's sort of that that void exists of sort of a, a number two to Binance. And there's a fight going on between uh, Upbit is, is one of them. I know OKX has taken some market share. Uh, there's no clear like number two to Binance at the moment. And now we're seeing some of these US-based companies that maybe are getting frustrated in the United States and unable to, to launch certain products. They're going offshore, looking at some of this other opportunity uh, as sort of white space, maybe to launch new products and compete uh, where there might be a, a market void to be filled. Yeah. And I, you know, if you didn't listen to that episode, it was, you know, I encourage you to do so. We talked a lot about kind of the, the bigger picture around uh, Coinbase and, and its business and kind of, you know, the regulatory landscape. And there, there are even more, more stories every week about, um, regulatory environments where things are very clear, where they're designed for digital assets and virtual assets. So yeah, it's just, I think it's going to continue to be a competition for talent and capital. Yeah. Yeah. Unfolding as we speak, as is the meme coin story. So um, as we as we wrap today, I think uh, we'll have to reassess a week from now um, about around the, the the landscape of meme coins and how much it's changed in a week because it's certainly uh, changed a lot since this time last week. Um, but for now, thanks guys for for the great discussion and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you next week. Have a great rest of your week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.